You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. The show is brought to you in partnership with Progressive Masculinity and HeadTeacherChat.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm Vicky Maguire. I'm an education and leadership coach. I support school leaders in numerous ways through coaching, coach training and leadership training. I coach head teachers and school leaders one-to-one via group coaching and I also do team coaching for senior leadership teams. I've created the Women Lead Well group coaching programme which is a bespoke coaching programme for female school leaders and I've also created the Women Lead Well network for female school leaders and on today's programme I have Alan Taylor who is the head teacher of Newton College in Alicante which is an international school there and the reason that I got Alan onto the show Um, Not only is he a very good friend of mine, I've known him for over 20 years now, um, but he is a a fantastic head teacher and he's been working in international schools for a number of years now. And I know that there are a lot of people out there, a number of listeners who are interested in how international schools work and how they're run and are asking the question, whether it could be something that they might like to go and do. So I asked Alan to come and tell us about what it's like to work in an international school, specifically in Spain, and what it's like to lead in an international school, how they're inspected, and how it compares to schools in the UK. And I think you're going to find it really, really interesting. So here he is. Here's Alan Taylor. You're going to really enjoy this interview. Alan Taylor, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. Hello, Vicky. It's nice to see you. Well, you you can see me, but nobody else can. Well, that's true. It's nice to hear your voice. Yes. So, it's I've tried to convince you for a while to come on the podcast, haven't I? And I've eventually managed to to get you on here. Um, So, will you start by? I mean, we're old friends, aren't we? We we go way back um, to. we were just talking about an inset session, you know, we're so interested in, in training that we were, uh, we were giggling like school children. In, in an they were insert, the best, back in, they were the best training opportunities, Vicky, come on. Back, back in, to, back in 2002. It's about yeah. connection. That's what it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, so can you introduce yourself to the listener? Just tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. Well, my, my name's Alan Taylor. I'm the head teacher at Newton College here in sunny Alicante. Um, but I've, I've had a, a long career before I was a teacher. I was Well, I was born in Manchester in quite a challenging school in the middle of Manchester. I worked as an aircraft engineer straight away, worked for British Airways. I decided to go into teaching um, around 26, 27 years old. And I worked in a number of schools around the Manchester and Northwest area. I worked as a head of, head of year, a deputy head of science, head of science, moved into assistant head, deputy head, a head teacher. And then at that point in my career, I decided that I wanted to add another journey to my life and so I moved out to Spain and I was um, a deputy head in a school in Valencia and then a head teacher in Castellón and here I am at Newton College. So Newton College is quite a large school, 1,400 students. Um, It's part of a group of schools called International School Partnership 
Um, and I've been here now for three years. So that's a quick uh, fast forward trip through my career up to where I am now. So I think the the reason why I've asked you to come on the show is because I think moving to an international school is something that lots I think lots of school leaders in this country think about they entertain it for a while don't they and you know it it might be something they could possibly do um and I think probably more so now more people are thinking about um, you know on Twitter I'm looking and lots of people are thinking about moving to an international school so can you just give us a flavor first of all of what international we'll come to leadership in a while but can you give us a flavor of what international schools are like and sort of how they're similar and different to schools in the UK? Yeah it's a great question Um, I I would say international schools are largely similar to any school whether it's a state school a private school um, a semi-private school there are lots of models of schools and actually the issues we see in schools and the opportunities we see in schools no matter what size they are, no matter where they are in the world, and what type of schools, the issues are largely the same. So actually, international schools tend to be private or independent schools. Um, they tend to be based on an, either an international curriculum, so the international diploma, or based on a British curriculum here in Spain, for example. We have a large association of British schools in Spain, and they're based on the British national curriculum, and they're Um, assessed as British schools and students do go on to do GCSEs or be independent uh, sorry international GCSEs or they go on to do A-levels or maybe the IB program so international schools are largely similar to the UK to the UK model of schooling and very similar if they're a British school and if they're an international school I think you'll find that I mean Newton College is an international school and actually it's very very similar to the British model uh, of education. Obviously, most schools are all through school, so they go from nursery, our school, our students start from the age of one, all the way up to the age of 18. So you're wow. like to join a school that's really diverse. And, you know, I love it because I get to walk through uh, the school and I get to see students right from the very first days in nursery, right the way up to doing their diploma um, in year 13. So that's one of the great things about international schools. But I would say that the main similarities are we're all about teaching and learning, which every school should be about. We're all about the, uh, having sent the student at the centre of, of, of the of the programme, and that's exactly where we should be. Um, we want to develop, well, we want to attract, recruit and develop great staff. Um, and that's what makes schools successful, no matter whether it's a state school, independent school here in Spain, over in the UK, over in the United States. I think those things we have in common. Um, lots of things are different, of course. And I would say, you know, A, the lifestyle that you will have if you work at a school in Spain will inevitably will be different. Um, obviously, our kind of our processes for evaluation will be different. Independent schools tend to have a bit more freedom in terms of, uh, you know, the questions we ask about ourselves as professionals in the school, the way we measure the quality of what we do, the way we assess students and our performance. Um, but schools still do it. And schools across the world still do those things. We, we have different languages around it. We have different processes. But we still review schools and we still review what happens within them. So those things are pretty much the same. What does a typical day look like in your school then? I think it's pretty similar to a typical day in the UK school. I think in Spain, the day tends to be a bit longer. So our right. typical school day begins at nine o'clock. We have two or three periods. We have a, a break time. We call it patio, but it's a break time. Then we go back to lessons and learning. We have a lunch time. Lunch time's a little bit later here in Spain. Most people eat lunch a little bit later, about two o'clock. 
Um, and then the school goes on till around, in our case, around four or five o'clock. So it's a little bit later than you would get in the UK. But of course, the term is a bit shorter. We finish around July time, the start of July. So staff enjoy up to two months um, in the summertime. Um, schools in Spain don't have half terms often. Some do, some don't, mm. about 50-50. Um, but, you know, the, the actual term will look largely similar to the UK, apart from those differences around half term and a larger, a longer summer as well. So you tend to, when do you go back? Do you go back in August time, is it? We go back in September. September. So the first right. day of staff is generally, for us, is the 1st of September. Students come back into school around the 6th or 7th of September. So we have a week of preparation and inset. Um, And so we we do, I would say, on reflection really in terms of inset, there are much more opportunities during the year for us to get together to train, to get together to get ready for the the new year. Um, And that would probably be a big difference as well. Yeah. So how does that, because that is one of the big things in this country, and um, I do um, the leadership performance coach role for the MPQs, for MPQH and MPQSL. And one of the one of the challenges with that is that there's an awful lot of material on the courses now about professional development and the importance of getting that right and the importance of teachers retaining knowledge. And the best way to do that is by, you know, you keep coming back to the same thing and you you go over it and over it again so that it becomes embedded and teachers can create mental models for, you know, whatever it is they're learning about. But that one of the big challenges in the UK is that we just don't have enough time on inset days or a lot of schools go to twilights and nobody really wants to do anything in a twilight session. It's not necessarily the best time for it. So it sounds like that might be something that's slightly different than in an international school or there in Spain. Yeah, I think in an international school, because we do have a bit more freedom and flexibility, we can decide when those days are. Now, obviously... The school calendar follows the national school calendar. So when the national holidays exist, we have our national holidays and we fit in our inset days around that. But actually, we do have other flexibilities. So we introduced a couple of years ago a Wednesday afternoon session, which works for staff. And it's not every week. It's it's some weeks. and, And we do that instead of having training days at the end of the year. And we did that in consultation with staff. So we asked them, would you prefer to have training days in July altogether at the end of the year? Or would you prefer that we kind of intersperse them during the year at times that we all felt were convenient? And actually, they went for that second model. And so that really works for us. So I think because we have a bit more flexibility and freedom, we can designate time where we need it to be. And, you you know, I know in every school, time is the most precious commodity we have. And so, you know, consulting with staff and working out the best model for doing that is always going to be a winner. What's... um... I'm just thinking um, about sort of the profile of your staff. What 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 is the profile of of your staff? Where do they come from, and um, what are their backgrounds? That's a really good question. I think because we're an international school and we do the international baccalaureate in secondary, and students in sixth form have a choice of doing the diploma baccalaureate or the national program bachelorato and that influences our staff makeup. If we were a British school, it would largely be British staff. Um, we're a British school up to secondary. So in, in, in primary and early years, our makeup is 80 to 90% British staff or staff from the UK or Ireland. 
Um, and then in secondary, we have a bigger international mix. So we have some staff from the United States, some staff from Greece, some staff from India. We have staff from all over the world, but the vast majority of staff are from the UK. And then we have a significant number of staff from Spain, from the local area, because we do the national uh, baccalaureate. So that sort of leads me into, I suppose, more leadership orientated questions. Yeah. How is that as a leader? Because the culture that you create in a school is so important, isn't it? Yeah. And when you've got such a diverse range of staff from all over the world, as a leader, you know, it can be difficult enough for a head teacher or a senior leader in an English school um, when the diversity of your staff, I mean, we're trying our best to get, you know, to create more diverse um staffing in our schools but it tends to be quite you know the diversity is quite narrow yeah. and that can be a challenge sometimes because you're still dealing with like lots of different people with different experiences backgrounds whatever but that must be a big challenge to lead in a school where there are so many different cultures that you must have to be aware of like different nuances and different ways that people have experienced education and life how does how how does that work? Is a, it, that's, a, that's an interesting point because I think for me that's the strength of the school. Having that diversity and that range of perspectives in the school is, I think, is a massive strength. Yeah. And one thing we've come to understand, Vicky, is that actually if you start from learning, le- learning is international. You know, the brain is not doesn't matter which country the brain comes from. The brain operates in exactly the same way. And if you start from that premise of we're here for students to learn or get better. And how are we going to do that? And how are we going to evaluate that? Then that, for me, is the most successful way of helping cultures to come together because you're, you're working from a shared platform. You're working from a shared understanding. Now, culturally, a teacher here in Spain might have a very different training than, than a teacher in the UK. And a teacher in the United States might have a different training, might have different training experiences too. Um, but I, th- I think... For me, that dialogue around learning and dialogue around the learner, that always helps us to centre ourselves on what the right thing is. And of course, you know, people can talk about um, classroom visits or what used to be called observations. And I think some cultures are more used to that than others. But I think for me, keeping the dialogue going and keeping focused on learning and the learner has really helped us to um, make sure we become a broad community that accepts lots of different ways of doing that. And it's the uh, it's keeping focused on learning that helps us to look at that diversity and actually bring them on board. So having that, I suppose you've got that the vision of the learning and the values that are shared there that you've identified, regardless of you know that diverse nature of your staff. Yeah. You really hone in on the things that everybody has in in common, and that's that's the learning and you talk about yeah go on you were going to say I was going to say yeah I was was going to add to it as well we actually did a lot of work a couple of years ago on what are the characteristics of a successful learner in the future so we did a lot of research Pearson education did a lot of great stuff on uh, future skills skills in 2030 and beyond other I know other organizations have done have done great research as well and we used a lot of that and we got together as staff to look at what were the 10 characteristics we wanted students to develop in school to prepare them for this uncertain future? We know, you know, there's, there's lots of commentary around how change is happening exponentially now. And the more that change happens, the more we're going to rely on core skills. What are those core skills across the world? 
and how can we develop them? And that kind of work brings people together. It doesn't matter whether you've had training in Australia or the UK or Japan. If you look at those core issues around global themes and around the future, actually that's quite exciting and it does bring people together. I think that's a really, really useful piece of work to do in a school, isn't it? To sit down and think, I think I was doing some work with a teacher the other day and um, she was talking about actually figuring out what, what do we want a pupil to be like? Like what skills do we want them to have? What what do we want them to be like as people when they leave? It was a primary school, but when they leave in year six, what does a pupil from, you know, what is it we're working towards? Because that really clarifies things for people, doesn't it, in terms of, this is what we're doing. There's a purpose to something. You're creating those pupils who can go out into, uh, like you're saying, a very uncertain world where potentially they might never meet their work colleagues because they'll be in the metaverse. They'll be like us, won't they? One person will be in Spain, one person will be in China, Japan, wherever. Well, that's, quite, mean, exciting. that's quite exciting. And yeah. The, the pandemic's taught us a, a massive lesson in education that to have this agility and flexibility, and we don't know, sitting here now today, you're in the UK, I'm in Spain, we don't know what the next global challenge will be. It probably won't be a pandemic, it might be something similar, it might be a technology blackout, I don't know. There could be lots of things that, that, that will affect learning and life in the future. But what we do know is the number one skill, and all of these well, the studies tend to agree, that the number one skill above all the others that students need to have and people need to have to be successful is to be great learners. And so above all else, any great organization, I believe anyway, whether you're here in Alicante or anywhere across the world, whether you're state or independent, is to be focused on that skill. And whether you do that through the British curriculum, the Spanish curriculum, whichever curriculum you choose, really doesn't matter. What matters is those students, those young people, as they enter this world with all of the change that's there, they're able to learn and able to work together and collaborate, think critically, all of these key skills. And I think that's what great schools focus on. And I think like you're saying then, because you're preparing, I suppose everywhere we're preparing pupils for a more international landscape in terms of the workplace. So you've got to focus on thing skills that are transferable and apply wherever you are in the world and like you're saying if you know how how you learn if you've got an interest in learning if you can be curious and you know be critical all those skills that you've got you can you can be successful wherever you go I just want to go back to um you talked about creating a dialogue with with staff and I'm wondering how you do that because communication with staff is one of the key elements of leadership isn't it yeah so how like you're talking about a lot of things here to do with your vision and values what you focus on what you you know strategically how do you create that dialogue with staff so that they're engaged because it sounds like you get quite a lot of engagement in this process that you use so how do you create that dialogue with your staff I think the starting point is to value dialogue and to create time and space for dialogue because often this kind of idea of um, consultation or getting agreement or you know getting shared ideas it's something that happens in the middle or at the end of a project whereas actually we know the bigger questions and the best answers come at the start of projects so you create space and you create the right kind of questions and then hopefully through that and by listening and actively listening and showing that you're listening and finding systems to listen well, 
um, you affect the change and you actually you reflect what staff want and what parents want. Now, it's not mean that doesn't mean to say there's not change in the process. Um, we see that through the dialogue, people's ideas do change. And for us to come up with a new, like the 10 characteristics of the Newton learner, you can imagine you ask 10 people what they think <laughs> are important for the future, they'll come up with 10 different answers. So we had to go through about three weeks of editing down these ideas where groups got together and shared and kind of negotiated their 10. And this group got together with that 10 to share and negotiate their 10. So it's thinking about how those processes work. So it would be easy for another school to come to our school and look at those 10 characteristics and say, they're brilliant, we're gonna copy them. And that's what schools, that's the mistake leaders make all the time. They copy products. And what's really important is to look at the process. And it's the process by which you get ideas. That's the bit that I've learned as a leader. How do you get the ideas of staff? And you start by having time and space to do it and you plan for those things. I said before, time is the most precious commodity in school. And it's the one thing I look at before any other when I'm thinking about change in our organization. And then it's how you have systems to make sure everybody can play their part. So when we get staff together, we often move staff into different groups. So a member of staff from early years will work alongside a member of staff from primary and work alongside a member of from secondary or sixth form because we want them all to share and see the wider picture of the school. If they just sit in their groups of staff that they're with every day of the week, I'm not sure they get that perspective. And we see that dialogue isn't just about the product, it's about the process for them as well. And in that conversation, they learn something new. Um, and it's also important to be focused and be clear about what the outcome is going to be. Um, I know for a fact the outcome is not what I'm going to expect it to be because I've let go of it at that point. Um, and so it's got to be meaningful. I, it's probably me asking the question if I know what the answer is going to be. It's interesting that you say that about the outcome because I feel like a lot of school leaders are really focused on outcomes. But what you've talked about is actually focusing more on the process. And do you think that if you focus on the process, yeah, you might not necessarily get the outcome that you were expecting, but that you will get a positive outcome if you focus more on the on the process? I'm not talking about I'm not talking about like being operational over being strategic. Yeah. I'm talking about thinking about getting the processes in place. So for example, a lot of schools are, you know, just blind blindly focused on Ofsted everything's about Ofsted and they want to get a, an out of good or an outstanding Ofsted outcome. Yeah. But I think that if you focus on the process of getting things right in your school and recognising that your school is a unique place um, and you can't just copy things from elsewhere, like you're saying, that you will get that outcome anyway. It might not look exactly how you expected it to, but focusing on the process does that. I think I think that's right. I think the, you know, I, I've seen individuals in schools focus massively. A great example is going into a lesson. You know, I visit lessons all the time. And, and the one biggest mistake I would say we make as teachers when someone visits the lesson is to panic and actually to, to perform to the visitor and actually or to really religiously kind of follow the lesson plan minute by minute, regardless of what's going on around you. And that's a great kind of example of where have it been focused on the wrong things just leads to a, a really ineffective result. Whereas if you, if you focus on how are we gonna get there, who are we gonna engage along the way, how are we gonna develop those people, then actually the destination 
matters slightly less. You know, I look at, I'll use these Newton 10 characteristics again. Would they be my characteristics? Not really. Does it matter? Not at all. What matters is that this has come from staff. And so therefore, it's much more likely to be alive in the school. And we do see these things alive in the school because staff see where it came from. Teachers know that this characteristic of being resilient came from these discussions we had about students needing to be resilient in the future. So when I see assemblies or lessons or awards being given out for resilience, that comes from a place, it comes from an experience of those members of staff. If that was just something we bought in, and even worse, we bought in because it might impress a visitor to a classroom, then I, I can't think of a better way to kill an idea. I think if we root it in our, our basic principle of helping students get better and to learn, then if a visitor comes in and notices that, and actually a visitor must notice that, otherwise why are they visiting the classroom? Um, if they notice that, then they've noticed it for the right reasons, not because I'm trying to display or perform for a kind of external set of criteria. Now, it's, it, I, I understand the challenges of Ofsted and we, we have ourselves our own reviews, our, our frameworks where we visit classes, but actually it's visiting classes from the point of view of somebody learning about what's going on in the lesson. So this year as a school, we've engaged in over 700 class visits and they're, they're done by everybody. So as a head teacher, I do some, but as a, as a, a learning support assistant, um, members of staff do those as well. We all do them. And we do them not to um, not to, to tell other people how learning should look and how teaching should look, but to actually learn about what students are doing in that classroom and share what we're learning. And I think by having that approach, that it's the process and the people who engage in the process, they're the people that benefit. Having that approach just get, I think, just gets better results for everybody. Okay. Totally and utterly agree with you. Uh, I think if if people who listen to the podcast regularly will hear sort of what I say echoed in what, what you're saying there. Yeah. And I think if you've got that shared, if you've got that shared vision, that shared understanding, and people have been able to contribute to it, they they will buy into it more. And that's the thing that you can't buy. Like, you know, once you've got that and you've developed that shared vision and everybody's buying into it, there's nothing to stop you then from buying a scheme that fulfills a need that you've got in a particular subject, is there? Yeah. yeah. Because you can do that then, but you're not just buying, you're not just trying to buy something in from somewhere else and go, oh, that's something that worked for them. So we'll do that because it'll work for us. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big problems in the UK education system and probably in England in particular is that lots of schools want they want a silver bullet they're looking for a panacea aren't they they're thinking oh i'm being told all these things work so if it works there then i'll do it yeah. rather than thinking what problems am i trying to solve in my context yeah. and what do i need to do in response to that yeah and it depends on what it is you know i see another school doing something and it, it's it's but the thing that they're doing is as a result of a process they've gone through. It might be a really short process where someone said, look, you need to do this and let's just do it. And that's what they do because they've got a culture of following. And that might be, you know, no one's judging that. It just happens. It's very effective. That's great. But, I, but what I've learned most from other schools and other people in my career is it's the process that took you to that place. Now, that's in a way harder to copy. You can't copy it. But what you can do is apply it to yourself. And once you've got those skills as a leader, that's easy to apply to another situation, whether it's a, you know, a situation in one school or another, one group of people or another, actually learning how to ask the right questions 
and learning how to help people come together to find the answer. It's, it's, it's a tough challenge, but once you've got those skills, I think they can be applied to anything. It's interesting that you refer, because I, I wrote down um, about creating the right kind of questions. I, it, it was something that struck a chord with me, because I think a lot of the time, school leaders, head teachers, don't necessarily think about what they want to find out or how they want to support people and what questions will help them to understand that or to um to put something in place so how how do you go about creating the right questions what does that mean for you what is what does it look like in in practice it's um it obviously depends on the context and it depends on what you're looking at but for me all questions have to ultimately focus on the learner and learning so if I'm asking myself, right, um, do we want to change the lunchtime from two o'clock to 1.30 because people are saying that it's a bit late to eat lunch at two o'clock? My, my, big, my big question would be, how would this impact on learning? Would this be a positive impact on learning or not? Would it be an insignificant impact on learning? And how do we know? What, what makes us feel, what evidence do we have that this is gonna affect the experience of the learner and make learning more likely in my school? So. For me, every tough decision that I face, and I say to staff openly, if you want to convince me of some change in the school, convince me how it's going to help our students to learn, and you're 99% of the way to convincing them that this is something we need to do. So I would say start from the learner. Um, I would also say don't be, don't be scared of, of um, finding ways to measure what you value. You know, we always value what we can measure, but actually things we really value, how do we measure them? Um, so again, looking at characteristics for students, how do I measure resilience in my school? What's the best way to measure those kind of things? And actually looking at methods that we've got to measure, the, measure these important things is part of our success. You know, if we can say we've improved in a certain area or feedback from students suggests this is better or feedback from somewhere else suggests this is better for me, I think that's what motivates me. In fact, I can't manage what I'm not able to measure. So it would all be great for me to come up with, or for the school to come up with these characteristics. If we couldn't find a way of demonstrating our impact on them, that would be pretty pointless. So our questions have rightly got to take us to a place where we can share, compare, celebrate the success that we've had in that particular area. It's so interesting that you say that because I think that's when school leaders are you know, looking at their to-do list and saying, oh, I've got too much to do and blah, blah, blah. One of the things that I suggest they do is score all the things on their to-do list on a scale of one to 10 in terms of the impact that that is going to have on the pupils' learning or progress. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the things that we do in schools are not impactful. They're not having any impact on the pupils' learning or progress whatsoever. And yet we seem to just keep on doing them even though that they're not having impact do you do you ask questions or when when staff come to you and say oh, i need an answer to this do you do you do you do like a ask them questions there it's like a coaching approach that you take where you get them to think for themselves through the questions that you ask yeah i try to i mean obviously there are some questions you just need an answer to but i would say if a member of staff comes to me with, with, a, with a question and they need an answer and i think 
it would do them some good to come up with that answer or at least come up with some possibilities and share them with me and for us to talk through what the answer would be, then that's the approach I try to take. I think, you know, all very often people come to us as leaders with problems to solve. And actually, I've just had a really, really interesting debate with some students who want us to look at racism in the school because we've had an incident, some minor incident of racism, and, and they want us to look at that. But I insist I'm holding them to meet me every week so that they can write an improvement plan with me to make sure that we're addressing the issue more. Because I understand that for them as students, they could come to me and I'll come up with the solutions and that would be great. But wouldn't it be a better experience for them to have come to me with the issue and for them to be part of the solution, for me to help them find what is the solution at this school? So this is not just about members of staff, it's about the school community. And it's about us working together and for us all to learn that we're in charge of our own community. It's us that's in charge. I'm, I make decisions and I help people and I, I try to create an atmosphere where this can happen. But ultimately, it's for them to lead their community and for them to learn from it and take that experience way beyond Newton in the future. It sounds like you've created a, a real culture around learning. How long has it taken you to do that sort of since you took up post? What, how long a process has it been, would you say? Before we find out the answer to that question, I'd just like to tell you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics, from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents, and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first School Leader Planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. I've been in post for three years now. So this is my third year at the school. Um, and I've got to say, it's a journey that we're never going to finish. It's, it's the kind of, it's the never ending journey of the school. Um, but I've, I've also got to say, I started off with that as my clear message, that there are some kind of things that I hold really dear. There's lots of things that are negotiable in, 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 in life. But there are some things that are not so negotiable and for me negotiable. And for me, learning and doing things for the learner is really at the heart. And um, I think if you stick to that like a broken record and you refer that back to that all the time and you develop your systems, processes, relationships, conversations around that core theme and link back to it as much as you can. I think that's probably the strongest and most powerful way as a leader, you can help other people to focus on that right thing as well. And that's about being intentional as a leader, isn't it? Sort of in your leadership presence, you, you know, you're really clear about what your intentions are and that you repeatedly give that message to staff so that they know like they would probably be able to say it how you say it because you you just say it so often that it just becomes part of the language of the school and the staff know it and the children know it and and you know it. I think I think you're right, and it is the 
it's the repeated experience. At the school, we've got our own kind of definition of what learning means. And as a group of schools, we, we talk about learning being a result of repeated experiences. And so if that's true for students who are learning numbers one to 10 in Spanish, it's the same for me as a learner, learning what those characteristics are and making them part of my daily life. So we need, as leaders and as people in school, we need those repeated experiences as well. So my role is to, is to expose staff to those repeated experiences that we did never assume people get it. And we never assume people are, are gonna be completely comfortable with it and gonna be able to completely interpret it and apply it to a new situation. So it is like, I mean, one of our staff said to me the other day, it's like we've had this drummed into us. And it is, you know, it is the, if this is important to us and it's been generated by the community, then this is important to us and we need to keep coming back to it as much as we can. What do you do when you get staff who don't necessarily engage with it well? Uh, so it's a really good question because, you know, any group of staff, any group of people, there will be some people who really are not engaging with it. And I think we've got to do all we can to understand why that is. So it might be something, I mean, we, we, we did have an issue of culture with our Spanish team of staff that they didn't quite understand what these 10 characteristics would mean for them. Um, so we worked with them. We listened to what the issues were. We were clear about where they come from and they were part of that process of coming up with the characteristics and why they're important in lessons. Um, I think if you show that you're able to join people on their journey and listen to them and point out the success, if you've got evidence of success, talk about illustrating success, actually generating champions who are like them. Quite often, I believe that the message is important, but the messenger is just as important. So I try not to do the big grandstand inset sessions where it's all about my vision and the school's vision. And instead, I rely on great conversations in the staff room, in the corridor, between teachers where they're talking about why this, why this activity, why this project is being successful for them. So thinking hard about like peer communication, how message, those little powerful messages we get around schools every day are just as significant as the big grandstand presentation message that leadership leaders in schools traditionally focus on. Do you plan your communication with staff? Do I plan it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we, 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 we try, obviously, as a complicated, we're a big school organisation, we spread over a massive campus, it's like a village. So we, we, we try carefully to make sure we don't overload staff with messages, that messages arrive and land at the right time, not too early, not too late, but we think about how, what, what we're going to be asking staff to think and do, and thinking and doing are things that take time, and what's the best time for that to happen. So we do try and work backwards from what do we want, what do we, what, where's our end point, and how do we help people to get there? Um, often, you know, life in school is, is quite often rushed. We get deadlines left, right, and centre. So sometimes you do have to push out an email and get some information. But we try to do as little as that as possible. And we have systems in place to engage our staff in conversations. So we have briefings, we have weekly meetings, we have opportunities for them to meet in smaller groups as well, as well as the big uh, inset events where we encourage them to speak to each other. So coming back to, you mentioned when we alluded to Ofsted, you mentioned that in Spain, there is still a system of um, review, I think you called it, yeah. um, rather than 
um, inspection? Or is it still inspection? How, how does that system work in Spain? Yeah, so schools in Spain, which are British schools, are members of the National Association of British Schools in Spain, NABS, and I'm a lead inspector for that, for that group. So they, they conduct inspections once every four years. And a NABS inspection is similar to an Ofsted inspection, but much lighter touch. The, the process is exactly the same. So we use exactly the same framework. Uh, two inspectors visit the school, we're there for one day. Um, and we review all of those areas of a school report that you would expect in an Ofsted report. The, I think the difference really is that the, the, the resulting report doesn't classify the school. It doesn't say this is a good school or this is an outstanding school. It gives authorization to the school. Of course, we talk about the quality of teaching and learning. Of course, we talk about accommodation resources, staffing, the curriculum, leadership. These things are equally important. And we offer uh, recommendations for schools to get better. And we, we, we know that they do because we have annual reports where we look at how schools have responded to our targets and responded to our suggestions. But I think the process is, and I've been involved in Ofsted inspections and I've been involved in NAVS inspections, I would say the process is much more collaborative and leads to much better outcomes because staff and schools are not obsessed with labels as a result of it. They're, they're, they're rightly focused on improvements. And we always say as, as inspectors that we want to leave schools much better places than, than when we got there because people have a bit more of an insight or a different insight, different perspective. Quite often schools understand fully the feedback we, we offer. Um, sometimes they don't. And, and usually there's a mixture of those two things, but we always leave helping the schools to see themselves a little bit more clearly. So in terms of working in an, in, uh, did you say as well that you have the, that NABS review, NABS, I'm sorry, there's something, something just a little bit amusing yeah. that amuses me about yeah. NABS. Um, but did you say there's another, so you get, so you get some sort of, um, visit every couple of years because there's something else as well that happens in your school yeah so it, it depends most a lot of schools in spain are members of groups of schools and we're a member of the group i mentioned before international school partnership so we engage best practice network of a uk-based um oh, that's who network. i work for yeah all right okay well <laughs> we, we we contract you then vicky uh, to come to our school every uh, three years and review ourselves based on nine nine kind of criteria, nine areas of school life, which are all really useful areas of school life, ranging from a general positive atmosphere. That's something that we measure. We try to measure and try to create evidence for. Um, evidence of learning, learning and teaching, uh, learners and learning, uh, leading learning. You'll be surprised, you won't be surprised that learning is at the Do heart. they all begin with an L? <laughs> they all begin with an L. But they're all focused on learning. And I think that's the important thing yeah. that, you know, this fits into what I said before, which is if you're going to review anything that's going to be worth reviewing, it's really got to come back to how does that help your our youngsters get better and learn? And it comes back to what you were saying, doesn't it? The um, measure what you value rather than valuing what you measure, yeah. which which is a, a key. Right? It's a, I think it's a completely different way of looking at things for some people. Probably it's probably a completely different approach yeah. um so if if a school leader in the uk was thinking about applying for a role as a 
I suppose, a deputy head or assistant head head teacher in a school in Spain. What what could they expect that role to look like and how how would a role in leadership compare to the UK? It's a great question. I think ultimately the same. Um, the, you know, the, the National Association of British Schools in Spain, the, the big kind of... Um, Objective really is for a school to look very similar to a school in the UK. So you have head of year, uh, you have head of subject. We might call them slightly different names as they do in the UK. We have deputy head, assistant head, head teacher. Um, so the, the job title it will be, and job description, which there should be one, um, and person specification will be largely the same um, as you would find in a, in a UK school. Obviously, because schools tend to be all through school, if you were a deputy head in an all through school, then it would be great if you had some experience in early years, primary and secondary. But we know somebody might not have that experience. But if they've got you know, evidence of them having some impact on learning in you know, one or two of those phases and they can demonstrate how they would go about it in the other, then that would be really useful, too. It's interesting that you talk about recruitment as well, because one of one of the things that is difficult at the moment is recruitment and retention what's it like for you what's your experience of recruitment and retention there well i think if good strong schools in the uk in sorry in spain or across the world do recruit and retain great staff i mean quite often the profile of a member of staff that comes to us might be, you know, sometimes staff stay with us for a couple of years and move on. Sometimes staff are looking to settle in Spain and want to stay with us in Spain. And we're used to dealing with a range of motivations and a range of, a range of reasons why a member of staff would want, want to come and join us. Obviously, our friend Brexit has really not helped in terms of getting visas for new members of staff. That's not that's not yeah. helped. I was just thinking of that because yeah. like a few years ago, you could have just got your job in, in Spain and been absolutely fine couldn't you and now has that been has that been a challenge for you moving sort of through that yeah I mean did, in the first year which was about two years ago when the when the when the, when the big changes happened we really struggled we we were we, were in, we came back in September and we were missing five members of staff because they just didn't have a visa wow. and they're not allowed to, we're not allowed to start work unless we have a visa since then things have gotten a little bit easier obviously now we tend to try to push our recruitment period um, as, as further towards January as possible. So we get lots of those decisions made by around May, April, May time. And so we've got a good number, a couple of months at least to get the visa sorted out. So that has reduced some of the flexibilities we used to have. But actually, you know, recruiting and selecting great staff really is at the heart of, if someone said to me, Alan, how are you going to make Newton College amazing and even more amazing in five years time? The best way I can do that is to get great staff. And uh, good schools know it and they focus on it um, and they often invite staff to come and spend the day in school, come and meet the staff, obviously, you know, teach a lesson. We look at the learning in that lesson. We come and, you know, they get to see the area, get to see what life is like in Alicante. Um, and that engagement, you know, I see the actual selection process as being as much the, the, the member staff finding the right school as the school finding the right members of staff, because international schools are really diverse. And they have, they have they have very you know they're very different in their ambition, very different in their vision and values. Um, and so it's important for you as a new teacher or leader at the school that you really align to that and that you see yourself being able to do that. One of the other barriers we see is staff love working in the school, but they really struggle with life beyond the school. 
So quite often, one of my most important questions when we select new staff is, you know, how do you feel you're going to deal with a bad day if you live here in Alicante? Because you won't have necessarily have the network immediately around you. So we really care. We want staff to be happy. And, you know, staff don't necessarily need to have their best friend around the corner. You know, now with the wonders of the Internet, you don't necessarily need that. Yeah. But we do want to make sure people understand that that is a risk. The risk is you come out to Spain and it's not what you expected it to be. You're not going to be on the beach every afternoon. And, um, you know, we, we want to make sure our staff are happy and that they stay with us for as long as they want to stay with us before they move on. But often that is a barrier. In life in school here is just like being in school in the UK, but life outside school is very different, especially if you don't speak Spanish. And depending on which part of Spain you go to, you know, that's more or less, less of a challenge for you. But um, certainly for me, that is a really big uh, personal specification that we're looking for. Someone who's got that resilience, that adaptability to be able to be successful and be happy in a new environment. I was going to ask if you needed to speak Spanish. It's a good question. And when I first came here, I spoke very little Spanish. I did I did a few lessons at Saturday school and, uh, and my Spanish has since gotten better. You'll be pleased to know. Um, but there's no there's no. Um, massive requirement to speak certainly not as a teacher and actually quite often British schools quite like staff that don't speak Spanish because it's not an option for the students in the classroom so actually speaking, okay. speaking only English keeps people speaking English. The, the students, children can't revert into exactly. Spanish to try they, to if, it's... If, if they know you can speak Spanish they love to speak to you in Spanish and so it's really important for us to keep you know part of that immersion there is, is keeping the, the language uh, is, is English. If as a leader, obviously it becomes a little bit more important because as a leader, you have to, you know, you have conversations with parents, with families, with other staff in the school that might speak Spanish. So Spanish does become more of an important skill to have. But again, a great school that sees potential in you will help to develop that. And it is not, I've learned that you're not going to be fluent in one, two or three years unless you really push yourself. Um, it takes oh, really? I'm, I'm, I think I'm virtually fluent. I've been, I've done a 64 day streak on Duolingo and my Spanish wow. lessons. I'm not, I was... right. I'm not going to test you, <laughs> but I'm really impressed. I'm really impressed. I thought I was heading towards fluency after I maybe think 90 I... days. I'm well, just... you're on your way. You're on your way. But I would challenge you to kind of do a staff meeting, a parent meeting in Spanish based on what you know now. I would say, I would say great schools see beyond that and will actually, I wouldn't say that should be a bar for you to apply. Obviously, look at the person's specification, look at whether it's desirable or essential. But I think a great school that sees potential in you, and if you show the ability to learn, which is that key characteristic, the ability to learn quickly, I think that shouldn't be a bar. We offer our staff free Spanish lessons and free English lessons. So, you know, good schools will see that as a development for you too. It's interesting what you say about recruitment because I do I do some apprenticeship tutoring on the level five operations department manager apprenticeship for school leaders. And one of the elements of that, it's really important that they learn about the recruitment process and they have to understand talent management models. And for many leaders in in the schools that I'm dealing with, they have absolutely no idea what a talent management model is. And the importance of planning for your recruitment, making sure your adverts sell your school as a, a really great place to work, first of all, and that you're engaging pre-interview dialogue with potential candidates 
not only for them but for you as well so that you can get a feel for your candidates and doing all you can to get the best shortlist for your for your job and I think schools in England do not do that particularly well I don't think they necessarily have embraced the power of the recruitment process and having a really great plan in place and having the resources that that sell your school is that something that you really focus on sort of the materials that you use that you send out to people and how that looks and the impression that it creates of what it's like to work in your school yeah I mean our aim when we when we advertise any job is to get the best possible person out there so to do that you've got to do more than just simply say this is a job at Newton College and expect the members, I mean, good yeah. members of staff will look at the website, they'll look at reviews, they'll look at other things, they'll look at results. A good, you know, most great members of staff will do that anyway. But you have to kind of illustrate why your school is a great place to work. And we do exactly that. We talk about what we offer. We talk about what the challenges are. We talk about what we will offer you in terms of your career. Now, obviously, a school in Spain is not a school in the middle of Manchester. So we don't have a massive amount of career networks and training networks as a school. Luckily, because we're part of ISP International School Partnership, we do have a range of training and a range of opportunities as a school. And we do offer uh, leadership training and we do offer opportunities for staff to develop as well. But I know that the, in, the, the selection process is about as much about a great member of staff selecting the school, especially if you're going to make the risk, take the jump, and come out here to Spain because it's a big enough change. There are big enough risks in that. What you really need to be sure of is when you're at school, are you going to be happy? And are you going to be happy and challenged and developed in school in the same way that as you are in the UK? Um, and if we can share, you know, uh, share what we are and what we do and encourage people to see that in us, then we've won and we've won a great member of staff. So I think you're right. I think, you know, gone are the days where, you know, you put a, a bog standard advert out there and you just get, you know, you hope to choose the best of what's out there. You've actually got to attract and, and target your advert to a certain type of teacher. And we know we're all different people, aren't we? So one math teacher will be very different to another math teacher. And we're, we're going for that math teacher that has those characteristics for the future. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, like you're saying, you know this, the person you are looking for. And I'm wondering how many schools in in the UK actually know what they want their member of staff to be like, you know, what values they want them to have, what approaches they want them to have to teach and learning. Have, have schools actually thought about what type of people do we want to recruit? Yeah. And I, I say to people, you know, I, I work with a lot of school leaders and I work with a lot of unhappy uh, school leaders who've ended up in a place where their values aren't aligned with the school or the head, and it can make them exceptionally unhappy. And I've talked to people, I've repeatedly talked to people about the importance of finding the school that's right for you as well, and actually working out what what the values of the school are, what the head teacher's like, what the head teacher values, and actually going, if you're applying for a job, going and having a conversation with the head teacher. And I said, if the head teacher in that school is not prepared to sit down and talk to you for 10 to 15 minutes about the job and who they're looking for and what the school's like and answer some of your questions. And it's probably not a school that you should consider working in. Yeah. Uh, and 
would you spend time talking to potential candidates and you know answering their questions and helping them to get a feel for what you're like and what the school's like yeah we do and we do it all the time Vicky and I in fact I speak to people before we even publish adverts so we've got people who are really waiting for us to publish an advert because they know the school is right for them they know the our values you know align with their values um, and they want to come and join our school and they're not waiting you know they don't want to wait for an advert to come up um, my, as I said before, my job is to get the best person to come to our school. And if I want to change this school to be even better than it is now, then it's, I do that through attracting great people and developing them through processes that help them to learn. And I see that. I can see that now. And so for me, spending half an hour talking to somebody who's remotely interested in coming to the school is time well spent. It's time well spent because they might come to us next week. They might come to us next year or in two or three years' time. Um, but but they will they will think about our school as a place to work and think about our school as a place to learn. And I think that's the important thing. I would say, you know, if, if a school doesn't do that, then they're losing out on a massive range of talent there. And if they're, you know, if they treat the candidates as the long list, which is a massive pile, usually is a big pile for us as well. But I think if you look at the individuals there before the process even begins, the chances are you're going to find the right people. You know, you only need one. I always say that you only need one person. Actually, usually it's those members of staff that engage with the school and really want to connect with the school first. They're the ones that are really going to link and their heart is going to be in the school from day one. And actually it's time well spent for me. And I think it says something about someone when they want, when they're interested in your school and they've asked to have a conversation, it, it says something about them as a person and their attitude, doesn't it? Yeah. And their approach to things. I think you're absolutely right in, in terms of teams. I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. Well, I, might, I might talk about it now because I had two things and one of them's dropped out of my head. But unless you get the right team around you, you're absolutely right, aren't you? Like when I think back to sort of great results that have been achieved in the schools where I've been a leader it's been because I've had the right the right people there and and I think that's that this was the link to recruitment because you have to be able to have a process that helps you to appoint the the right person doesn't it because if you get that wrong you end up with a member of staff who doesn't fit in your school maybe doesn't want to do the things that you're doing so how do you make sure you get the the process right so that you can identify who the strongest candidates are on in the, the process that you're following that's a good question i would say that it starts from really what are we looking for and we've got our characteristics and they're the same for students as they are for staff we want our staff to be successful in the future. So we want them to be resilient, we want them to be uh, solution focused, we want them to be critical thinkers. So we've got our kind of profile of a Newton member of staff and that might be different to other schools, I don't know, I don't know what the schools are thinking about for that, but we've got our kind of, our profile generally, but then we look at the role and obviously a head of maths at school might be different from a year four class teacher. There might be completely different people working around them. Um, in a completely different environment where there are a different set of skills. And also that team that they're with might have changed from last year as well. The person uh, moving on might have a completely different profile to other people in the group. Now, we try to be clear about that and look at what kind of people we want. And in terms of selection, we focus on behaviours and attitudes and characteristics. 
we tend not to focus on things like qualifications. We assume, of course, we check them. We make sure that the qualifications are there, but that's a baseline for us. Experience is really important, but you know and I, Vicky, that someone can have as much experience in one year as someone else has in 10 years. So we, we've learned not to measure numbers about experience or indeed which schools and where they've been. We actually look at what they've done with that experience. And again, that's a behavior. So when they come to visit us during the day, we're looking for those behaviors and you'd be amazed how many behaviors you can pick up just by talking to someone, having a cup of coffee, talking to them about them, about their life. You yeah. can pick up certain bits of language, bits of attitudes. You walk down the corridor and a student drops some litter. How do they respond to that? You know, how do you, you know, how do you measure those things? So I've, I've spoken a lot to the people who recruit in the school about what are the behaviours we're looking for and how are we going to try to elicit them? How are we going to try to fairly judge whether they're there? Um, and so we do less. I mean, the interview is probably the, the worst kind of bit of feedback we get, actually. You know, it's probably the least useful piece of feedback, unless you're asking really challenging questions about behaviours and examples of behaviours, they tend to be good questions. Um, but it's more about observing that member of staff doing what they're going to do day in, day out, which is teaching, interacting with young people, negotiating with peers and colleagues, contributing to teams. And so we try to set up selection activities based on those things, rather than an interview with me in my office. And, and I think that's, is that is it the same in terms of equal opportunities that you have to ask all your candidates the same questions in the interview yeah yeah, yeah. And, and so you're right those informal conversations where you're having a cup of tea or they're having a wander around the school or they're out in the the yard I think I remember when I went for my interview for deputy at uh, the last school I was at and when they said oh come out into the yard at um lunchtime and the rest of the candidates sort of all stood talking to each other and I went out to talk to the children I found some I thought if I get this job I'm gonna to have to know some of these cheeky year 11 lads you know and I went out and, and talked to them and I got a feel for what they were like but if you're watching someone do something like that you can really see how what their attitude is like and how they behave can't you and that those things on interview like you're saying are often more important than those stock answers that you get to the questions of you know bog standard interview questions i suppose and i, I guess now even with you know the advent of technology those kind of questions are easy to find and easy to answer and i think obviously we need to keep this kind of equitable and the same opportunity needs to be given to every candidate and that's our challenge how do we assess i mean you give me a great example there Vicky, where everyone went out to the playground and so i'm sure well i hope as part of that process, somebody somewhere was clocking the fact that you went over to the year 11s and you engaged with them because that is a behaviour and that's a behaviour that can't be repeated or can't be copied. It's a decision you made that says a lot about you as a leader. And that's the kind of thing that we try to focus our recruitment on. And it was when I did it, it was, I wasn't doing it because I was trying to say, oh, look at me going to... I actually really enjoy the challenge of engaging with you know maybe some of your harder to reach young people and actually when I did get the job they remembered me and they were like oh yes miss and straight away then I'd got I'd got a relationship you know something to build a relationship with those young people on and um, so 
we've been talking for ages as per usual i could talk all day or all night about these things um to finish what would you say is the best thing that would convince someone to come in i mean you said you've got a big long list it's a shame because when we when we interview for posts here we have like i've i've had people say they've only had one application for a for a maths head of maths role or deputy head roles only three applications in one school I was talking to someone so you know the the situation is pretty dire and we probably don't want people going to Spain however some people want to do it so what would you say is the best thing about working in an international school and why should someone make that leap I think I mean everyone's individual for me I think international schools offer you the best of a number of things. First of all, you get to live in a different environment. And we all know in terms of well-being, that change, and that's what I was looking for, a new challenge um, was really important to me. But equally, international schools offer you a professional challenge as well. And I think that's something I would look for in an international school. What professional challenge will I uh, have? Is it a new curriculum, doing the IB programme, for example? Is it a new context of, of teaching students who are predominantly uh, have English as a second language? Is it a new role for me? And how will that challenge look different in five years' time? So, again, great schools are not only able to offer you a challenge today, but they're able to talk about challenges in the future as well. And international schools do that more than any other, I think, because they're usually growing. They're usually a really diverse community. They usually offer you the ability to put your teaching and learning into context because you're part of a bigger school. Um, And a great school will still be focused on those things that you're familiar with and familiar with students getting better, students with them practicing knowledge, skills, understanding, all of those things that actually, as a teacher, it's why I get up out of bed. And I, I still consider myself to be a teacher. I get out of bed because I want students to get better. And that's what international schools still offer you. But they offer you that, plus a bit more freedom, as we spoke about before, a bit more freedom about what your role could be in the future. And, ox- and actually, you're part of a, a more diverse community. Now, I know in the UK, we've got diverse communities everywhere, which is fantastic. But I think international schools also offer you that and offer you that in a new context, which will challenge you in lots of ways. And I think if you're looking for that challenge, and you're looking for to, to do something different in a new setting, then an international school is the best place for you to be. Thank you so much for joining us. You've, you've almost convinced me there to come and work in an international school, but I can sit working in my dressing gown during the daytime and you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't provide that for me, could you? Well, you never know, Vicky. With, just, technolo- with technology <laughs> now, you never know. You never that's know. a big secret I've just revealed that I sit, they're in meetings in my dressing gown. It's only because it's been cold. It's or, it, or comfort. It's a bit of a comfort thing. But yeah, well, it's lovely. Vicky, it's lovely and warm here. So I won't show you, but I've I got, know I've got my bebudas on underneath. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't really. I haven't really. All right. It's just uh, to be honest with you, it's it's spring here. It's the it's the equinox today, isn't it? And it's just been drizzly most of the day, and the forecast is for more rain this week. So, um, yeah, that's. Sunny spells. So well, yes, yesterday, Vicky, I was on the beach yesterday afternoon, but I'm not gonna uh, rub it in too much. Don't 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 rub it in. Thank <laughs> you so much. Um if people were interested in in your school or what you do, 
would they be able to get in touch with you to find out more about it? Of course. Well, the, the easy way is to go on, go to our, our website, which is Newton College. So you just search Newton College Alicante. Be careful because there's one in South America as well. <laughs> it's a great school, but you might end up going to South America instead of instead of Spain. So Newton College, or you could email me, and my name is A dot Taylor. So that's A dot Taylor, T A Y L O R at Newton College dot es newtoncollege.es and I, I promise will. I'll respond within a day or two to any email unless I get 10,000 in which case it might <laughs> we don't have that many listeners not quite anyway you'll get there however the good news is we were in the top 100 100 education podcasts in the UK for Brilliant. our latest episode That's so fantastic. Yeah, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to encourage. I'm going to encourage our, all our staff and schools in our network to. Yeah, achieve. and that's that's all education podcasts. So it's le- just learning podcasts, not just in the sphere of education. So Fantastic. I'm very, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> Keep going, originally, Vicky, get there. originally, when I started the podcast, I said I'd be happy if I had ten listeners. So that's amazing. That's, uh, yeah, that is amazing. Um, so thank, thank you so much, and. Um, Go on, enjoy the enjoy the sunshine, and you get lighter evenings as well, don't you? Because you yeah. don't have day daylight saving like we do. Um, oh, you know what life is like as a head teacher, Vicky. I don't see, I don't get to see that much <laughs> sunshine. I don't get to see that much sunshine only on the weekend. Well, you'll have to come back again because we didn't even get a chance to talk about well being, did we? No, no. Invite me back. So, I'm invited. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, okay. Alan. Take, Take care, care, Vicky. So, where can I sign up? After that interview, I would really, really love to go and work in an international school. It sounds like it would be such, such a challenge. I mean, obviously, Alan is talking about his experience in an international school and explaining what that might be like for you, were you to go and work there. But there are so many things that are just universal to leadership in schools and there were two words that Alan used and I think he talked about agility and flexibility being really important to leadership and I I really agree with that I think they are two traits really that you should be thinking about how you develop those and Alan really focused on the value of dialogue and creating space for dialogue and also creating the right kind of questions and I think that is just so important I mean the research suggests that that is the best professional development for staff is the opportunity to engage in professional dialogue having conversations about learning about their teaching can really be very, very impactful on staff and their ability to teach pupils more effectively. The other thing is they find ways to measure what you value rather than valuing what you measure. And I think that's a really interesting way of of looking at things. So thank you to Alan for, for taking the time. I want to celebrate this week because we have been in the top 100 education podcasts as I said when I was talking to um to Alan so thank you so much to everyone who listens to the podcast on a regular basis I'm so grateful for your loyalty to the podcast and for continuing to listen every week I couldn't do this podcast without you so thank you very much to all of the listeners out there if you are interested in finding out more about 
team coaching for your senior leadership team or one-to-one coaching for you as a head teacher or school leader or if you'd be interested in the women leaders group coaching program or joining the network or you just want to have a chat about coaching and how you might approach it in your school, please do get in touch with me. I would love to have a conversation with you. You can email me, it's vicky at weleadwell.co.uk or you can look on the website at weleadwell.co.uk. That's about all we've got time for this week. So other than to say thank you again to Alan for a great interview, take care of yourself, take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Progressive Masculinity and headteacherchat.com.